We'll take a copy of the scriptures and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17 is where we'll spend some time this morning. Our series of messages this summer is called Words of Life, and we are walking uh, or exploring various scenes uh, from the life of Jesus and from the apostles as they encounter unbelief and seek to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And we're seeking to to learn from these encounters uh, ways that we might grow in our own fruitfulness and faithfulness and effectiveness as we seek to carry the gospel of the kingdom to those around us. And so we're in Acts chapter 17 today, and we're going to look at the Apostle Paul uh, and his time in Athens. So while you're in Acts 17, I'm going to read to you a few verses from 1 Corinthians. You don't need to turn over there. But here are words that the Apostle Paul writes to Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he goes on, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul boasted in the foolishness of the gospel from the perspective of the world who seeks wisdom in different places. And he finds himself in Acts 17 right in the middle of the epicenter of wisdom, the the epicenter of philosophy. The city of Athens is uh, is known as a cultural uh, center point throughout Greece uh, and and the Greco-Roman world, both for sort of pagan idolatry. There would be massive temples to all kinds of, of false gods. And there was a lot of philosophizing going on. If you you may have read, if you're a a history or philosophy uh, nerd, you may have read about Socrates spending time in Athens and addressing men of Athens. In fact, in the very same way that Paul does in in this passage. And so Athens is this place where, where wisdom is pursued. But of course, the wisdom that is sought is uh, is outside the bounds of God's way and God's identity and, and God's calling uh, to his people. And as Paul walks around in Athens and engages with people, he explicitly and intentionally posits the Christian gospel as the answer to the mysteries of Greek philosophy. And therein lie some lessons for us in how to engage the world's ideologies and false narratives in our own day. So Acts 17 occurs during uh, Paul's second missionary journey. He had been in uh, Berea and left there in a hurry because some people were trying to kill him. And so he didn't even wait for his uh, partners in ministry. They just got him out of there and took him as far as Athens and then returned to try to gather uh, Timothy and Silas, his partners in ministry at this point, uh, to bring them there. And so he is in Athens waiting. We don't know exactly how long, but he's waiting for a while for his partners to join him. And so this scene in Acts 17, verses 16 
through 34, takes place while he's waiting in Athens for Timothy and Silas to join him. So let's look together at verse 16. We'll read this in sort of two paragraphs and and, uh, draw out four principles as we go for our proclamation of the gospel. Beginning of verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We'll pause in our reading there. Here's principle number one. Hold God's honor in highest esteem. (coughs) Hold God's honor in in highest esteem. You can see as this passage begins, Paul finds himself waiting in Athens and he's looking around and spending time among the people and in the city and his spirit is provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. We've already mentioned, of course, that Athens would have been a center of, uh, of the worship of false gods and these temples set up uh, to these pagan deities. And as Paul observes the hold that idol worship has on the people of Athens, it says his spirit is provoked. That's not the Holy Spirit. That is Paul's conscience. That is Paul's own heart. He is, he is stirred to indignation, to perhaps sorrow, frustration, to see the rampant idolatry. And it's not necessarily because he thinks that the idols themselves are worth bothering too much about. He says elsewhere, we know that idols are really nothing, right? So he's not angry because these false gods are sort of raising themselves up against the true God because they're no gods at all. What provokes him is that the hearts of people made in God's image who were created for his honor and his worship are so devoted to these false gods. And that can only be true because Paul's esteem is first for God and not for people. In our efforts to reach others, we do need to love people. But before we love people, we need to love God. We have to have a high value, a high esteem that we place upon the honor of God. I wonder when the last time is that your spirit was provoked on God's behalf. By observing idolatry in the culture around you or in the people that you know? Does your heart burn with passion for the glory and honor of God? When you're offended, is it for God's sake or is it more for your own? Whose honor are you seeking to defend with your indignation when those feelings and those uh, that your spirit is stirred in this way? I think if we're honest far too often that the indignation and the offense that we take is more personal 
It's more on our own behalf because we feel slighted or we feel belittled in some way. Perhaps you're watching a television show and they, they make a mockery of Jesus or of, of the Christian faith in some way. And you may be sort of incensed by that. But if we, if we parse what's going on in our hearts, I think at times it might be because we feel that we've been made little of. Right? They're mocking Christians. I wonder how much of our, our stirring, our, our pro- provocation is on behalf of the honor of God. That is what drives Paul in his work and witness. So our faithful witness to the kingdom must always begin with love for God and passion for his glory. Such that when we see him belittled or demeaned in various ways in our world, that our spirits are provoked all kinds of ways that God is belittled and demeaned and made a mockery of in our world through uh, identity politics, through sex and gender ideology and the confusion that surrounds those ideas, through political maneuvering and posturing for power and the theater that often accompanies that, through human ambitions for money and fame and, and power. There are all kinds of ways that God is belittled and mocked. And our spirit should be provoked by the honor of God being besmirched among his creatures. So number one is hold God's honor in highest esteem. There's a second principle I think we see from these verses that introduce us to Paul's time in Athens, and that's this. Be intentionally present in religious and secular spaces. Be intentionally present in religious and secular spaces. So Paul is, he doesn't sit in a hotel room and just take a long nap to wait for his friends to come to him. He is out and about among the city and with the people. And in fact, it tells us there's two kind of specific areas that he focused on. Verse 17 says that he he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, right? So that's the first group of people that he would seek out. Those who he knew were already going to be gathering in the name of their sort of religious observances where he could then speak to them about the gospel. And also... It says he went into the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And so in that case, he just puts himself in public spaces where people are likely to be, where people gather. And we get this idea from this passage that the the people in the city of Athens regularly sort of floated around looking for something new that they could consider, right? Their interest in philosophy and seeking wisdom. It said they spend all day doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. So people were, in this context, were sort of interested in conversations like that. So they're floating about the marketplace and always listening for, I wonder if somebody's got something to say, some philosophy to share, some religion to preach. And so it's a ripe environment, of course, for Paul to bring the message of uh, the risen Jesus. But he is intentionally present where religious people gather and where secular people gather, if you will, if we can use that language. And so I think there's some value in, in sort of determining for ourselves, where are those spaces in our, in our culture? Where are those places uh, in, in where, where we live, you know, where religious people gather? Uh, of course, there's, you know, we're religious people in a way, and we're gathering here. Uh, but there are other religious groups around us, and we could 
consider ways that we might sort of uh, be a fly on the wall, if you will, in some of those spaces. Perhaps uh, social media may play a role here. I don't want to encourage you to, to sink too many hours into debating on social media, but there can be a, a way in which uh, social media interactions might be a place where we can represent Jesus and his kingdom to those who have and espouse different views and ideas. And perhaps God in his kindness would use our witness even there to point people to Christ. But I think even more importantly for us in our day is this marketplace idea. Where, are the, where is the marketplace, the common spaces where people tend to collect, where we could talk with whoever happened to be there, right? By the providence of God as people gather. And I think there's, uh, that's maybe a little bit more uh, easier for us to identify some of those things. What are those spaces in our culture? Perhaps sports clubs and, and children's sporting events and things like that. Even something like the Avenue, you know, where I don't know if you've been to the Avenue recently in White Marsh on a, like a, a, a weekday or even a Friday evening. It's a pretty bustling place. There's a lot of people around. So what if we just make ourselves intentionally present in those spaces and pray for opportunities to talk with anybody who might be willing? I think there are opportunities in those public spaces, in our own neighborhoods. And this time of year, as the weather is, is on sunny days at least, you'll find people out. You may find people sitting on their front porch or in their front lawn or outside playing with their kids. Um, there, there may be opportunities, again, if we make ourselves intentionally present where people gather, we may find that the Lord grants us opportunities to speak of Christ there. And so I think we can learn from Paul's example here by intentionally going to the places where people collect and looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Now in these verses in our passage here about Paul, uh, the the people are very curious about the foreign divinities that uh, he is preaching. And so they invite him to the Areopagus, which is a big fancy word. This is basically the Talon's philosophy council. The, the Jews had the, the Sanhedrin, which you think of as the council of the sort of religious leaders among Judaism. And, and Athens had the Areopagus. These are the, the, the thinkers, the lead thinkers who would sort of uh, direct the affairs of the, of the city. And so it's this official formal council of the philosophers, if you will. And so they bring him to the Areopagus. And uh, his speech there takes up the next uh, ten verses or so. And it is... Uh, Instructive. It's it's brilliant. It's it's strategic. It's uh, it, it is an excellent uh, example of preaching Christ in a context of unbelief. So let's read verses twenty two through thirty four, and then we'll draw out a couple of more principles that'll help us. Beginning verse twenty two. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, "Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious." For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For 
In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I think this is probably not the entirety of Paul's speech. I think Luke is probably giving us a, a Cliff Notes version of his address, because it's a little bit difficult to imagine Paul only speaking for about five minutes. Um, as at one point we know he preached so long that a dude in the window fell asleep and fell out and died and had to be raised back to life. So this is probably just the cliff notes of Paul's speech. And nevertheless, we get enough from it to see some really important principles that we can carry into our own efforts to speak the gospel. In Paul's wise, strategic, thoughtful presentation of the gospel in these verses, we find at least two more principles to help shape our own proclamation. Here's the third principle on the morning. Engage the world's values and ideas. Engage the world's values and ideas. Now, this can be a rabbit hole. This can be a ditch. We can spend all of our time immersing ourselves in the ideas and the ideologies and the narratives of the world and become experts in the sort of cultural philosophy of our day to the expense of ever actually getting around to figuring out how the gospel connects or, or looking for opportunities to speak about Christ. Nevertheless, there is value in learning the way that people think and the kinds of things that people believe and value in our world so that we can try to find those connecting points. And that's exactly what Paul does in these verses. In verse 22, he begins his speech by saying, men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. And so he's just observed, right? He says, as I was observing your city and your various altars, right? So he's walked around and he's seen and he's considered and he's looked at the inscriptions on their altars to know the kinds of things that they believe. And so, and he finds a, a point of connection where he can speak about the true God. Now, he's not here accommodating their worship of idols, and just tacking on the Christian God to it, right? He says, you've got a bunch of altars, including one that's to an unknown God. I'm just going to tell you that God, and then you'll be complete, right? So he's, he's clearly not like uh, accommodating all of their other idolatry. He simply uses uh, the particular idol to the unknown God as a springboard to proclaim the true God. Brian Vickers said, Paul uses the altar as his inroad, but then proceeds to dismantle their idolatry. And indeed, that's what he does in the first several sentences of this speech, right? He, he talks about how, how foolish it is to worship images that come from the art and imagination of man, right? And a key strategy, strategy that he uses in dismantling their idolatry is to specifically quote their own philosophers and poets. 
I think there's some value in that too. What are the songs that the people of our world are singing? If you can quote a song lyric to somebody and use that as a springboard to talk about truth, there may be some strategy in that. And so he quotes two of their philosophers or poets. The first line that he quotes is this one that says in verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. That quote probably comes from Epimenides of Crete. And then the second one, for we are indeed his offspring, comes from Aratus, who was a Stoic philosopher and poet. And so he, he quotes them as a point of identification. So his audience might go, oh, wow, this guy knows our poets and has paid attention to our philosophy. He's able to sort of uh, to converse with our ideas. He quotes them, but then he sort of reinterprets and reapplies their lines to the truth of the gospel. So, for example, when he quotes the Stoic poet saying, we are indeed his offspring, he takes that and basically says, absolutely, we are his offspring. Of course, the Stoic poet who said that was not thinking of the true and living God. He was thinking of some collective sort of uh, force uh, of, of the, maybe the conglomeration of gods. We are his offspring. And so he takes that and says, absolutely. And, and as the offspring of a divine being, surely we don't have the ability to make a divine being out of stone or silver or gold. Right? We come from him as his offspring. Surely he does not come from us. And so he takes the, the line of this uh, stoic poet and, and turns it. And actually uses that to, to sort of disprove their own thesis. So there's, it's clever. It's, it's a, a, an intelligent way to engage and sort of subvert their own beliefs and ideas. Now, Epicureans and Stoics, those are two major uh, branches of, of philosophy uh, of, of the day. And we don't need to become experts on those, uh, those things. But both of these groups would have believed uh, that the gods... This plurality of deities were distant and impersonal, right? They, they exist somewhere out there and we just have to kind of try to appease them to the best of our ability, which is one of the reasons they have so many of these altars and one to an unknown God. They're like, just in case we've missed one, we want to appease him too, right? And so, but they believed in a distant, impersonal uh, group of gods. And Paul's portrayal of the true God is much different, isn't it? He gives to all men life and breath. He formed every nation of man from one man. Pay attention to that language. He's referring, of course, to Adam, the first man. But he's going to come back to that one man language in just a minute. And he, God, allotted boundaries of their dwelling. Right? So he determined the times that they would live and a lot of the boundaries of their dwelling. Have you ever thought about that? Even the details of the time of, the, of history where you, that you live in and the boundaries in which you live are allotted by God. Every detail of our lives is under the providence of God. We are not accidentally just sort of by chance floating around where we are. God has placed us in his wisdom and his purposes exactly where we are and when we live. All of these things are allotted by God. And then he gives a purpose so that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I think Paul perhaps sees the various altars that have been set up to these gods. And, and the interest on the part of the Athenians in 
appeasing God and looking for, uh, for truth as a misguided uh, effort to seek for reality, to seek for truth, to seek after God. And so he says, we are his offspring and he's placed us where he's placed us so that we might look for him. And so he sees their efforts here as a sort of a stumbling, staggering, feeling around in the dark to try to find God. And yet he is actually not far from each one of us. What a beautiful statement. What a powerful idea that in the world of of religion that sees God as distant and impersonal and somebody you have to sort of try to just appease, Paul presents a God who is not far. A God who knows you and the details of your life. A God who indeed planned the time and place of your dwelling for the purpose of drawing you toward himself, that you might find him. This is what God is after. So pay attention to the values and ideas of the world around you. Read articles and books by secular philosophers and teachers. Listen to the world's music as much as you can handle it. It's getting worse and worse these days, I guarantee it. Look for touch points in our culture to redirect a conversation to the gospel, just the way that Paul does here. Here's one example of, of an idea where we, there may be a touch point in our culture and the kind of common language and values of our, of our culture to, to speak about the gospel. And that's the notion of identity. The question of identity, that is so huge in our day. And people, and especially young people, are very confused about who I am. That question, who am I, right? Is my identity determined by what I feel? Does my body have anything to do with my identity? There's this value of self-expression, Sort of the highest value of our kind of post-postmodern age is, is learn who you are and express that, project that out into the world. And so that puts a lot of pressure on the struggle to discover who am I. And so the notion of identity is this, this clear point where everyone is wrestling and struggling and trying to find clarity. And the gospel of Christ answers this question of identity so clearly and powerfully. You are a bearer of the divine image. You were made for fellowship with him, but you're broken by sin and separated from him. But good news, in Jesus Christ, you can become a child of the living God. That's the answer to that identity struggle. Who am I? Well, you're a bearer of the image of God who's broken and separated by him, but through Christ can become a child of the living God forever. If we just look at that that example of identity and the way that our culture struggles uh, to discover that, we have a clear launch pad, just a springboard to go to the, the way that the gospel answers the question of our identity. So engage with the world's values and ideas. Again, I'm not suggesting that we become experts in all of the sort of world's philosophies and ideologies, but pay enough attention that you can uh, answer those things with, uh, with Christian truth. One resource I'd suggest to you on this front is Al Mohler's The Briefing. He has a really good uh, daily uh, podcast that, uh, 
that addresses worldly values and beliefs from a sort of a biblical uh, Christian worldview. So just a, maybe a helpful starting place if you're like, I don't even know how to start like learning what the world believes and how to think about it. The, the briefing is the name of uh, Dr. Muller's uh, podcast. All right, fourth and final principle we'll look at today is this. Warn of judgment and offer redemption. Warn of judgment and offer redemption. Our gospel proclamation has to include both the warning of judgment and the promise of redemption through Christ. Look at verse 30. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. God is patient. There is a season of grace. There is opportunity. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Remember the one man earlier? From one man he made all nations of the earth and a lot of their times and boundaries. Now he says there's a day fixed when God will judge everybody through one man. So we've gone from first Adam to second Adam. We've gone from the first representative of humanity by whom we fell to the new representative for humanity by whom we are raised and redeemed, namely Jesus Christ. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Now that's hard. That is a hard word. That is an uncomfortable, unpopular truth. But we must warn others of the judgment to come. If we're to be faithful as witnesses to Christ and if we're to love people well, we have to tell them there's a day appointed when you will stand before Jesus as judge. You have to be ready for that day. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This is the way that God has established it to be. That day is coming. And Paul points to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as a divine guarantee of this coming judgment. Right? He says uh, that he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, that is of that judgment and the fact that this man has been appointed, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is God's guarantee that judgment day will come. That's not all that it means, but that's, that's part of what it means. And that's what Paul leans on right here. The fact that Jesus is raised from the dead means judgment day will surely come. Now, Epicureans and Stoics both rejected the idea of resurrection. The notion of, 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 of somebody rising from the dead was utter lunacy to them. And so you can even see in their response there, it says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Down to verse 32. That, that's how they would have, would have thought about this. This would be a stumbling block to them. This is that 1 Corinthians 118, the folly, the foolishness of Christ crucified and raised. It's nonsense to the sort of Greek philosopher but nevertheless, Paul proclaims plainly the resurrection of Jesus as the proof that they will stand themselves one day before Jesus as their judge. If we don't warn people of the judgment that's coming for every person, then they will be entirely unprepared to stand before King Jesus on that day. And that is a fearful 
and frightful prospect. Book of Hebrews also tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we must warn of judgment. But redemption is in there too. It's brief, but it's there. Look at verse 30 again. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's a time of God's patience. There's a time where God waits. There's a time where God overlooks, if you will, the sins and the rebellion of his creatures. And there's an opportunity to repent. He would not call sinners to repent if there were no chance, if there were no opportunity for them to be redeemed. If there were no hope of salvation, God would simply drop the hammer of judgment without warning or explanation. And that would be that. And he would be righteous to do that. But he warns us. He calls us to warn others. He calls us to repent, which means to acknowledge your sinfulness and turn away from it to follow Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9 assures us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the good news of the gospel. There is a day of judgment coming, but if you'll repent, if you'll turn from sin to Christ in faith, you don't need to fear the judgment that's to come because Jesus himself will cleanse you from your unrighteousness and forgive you of all of your sins. I have to ask, have you repented of your sin? Have you believed upon the risen Lord Jesus and asked him to become your savior? As long as you're breathing and have ears to hear, it's not too late. Repent. Trust Christ. Turn from lifeless idols to serve the living God. He is actually not far from each one of us, said Paul. The distance between a sinner's heart and the Savior's mercy is only the humility of repentance and belief. Repent of your sin, trust in Christ, and you don't need to fear this day of judgment to come. Paul's speech to the Areopagus ends rather anticlimactically. Uh, Some of them are willing to hear him speak again on another day, and actually a couple of them uh, believe the gospel and join Paul's ministry, at least least one of them among the Areopagus, right? It says uh, Dionysius the Areopagite believed and began to follow Paul, and also a woman named Damaris and some others. So not entirely uh, without uh, fruit or or result. But most of them don't change their minds or turn their hearts. Some of them even mock him for his message. Paul's standing in front of this council and preaching Christ's crucified and raised. And they laugh and they mock and they make fun. Does that mean that Paul's evangelism failed? That his message was powerless to save? That he's wasted his time? Of course not. Paul Vickers again, excuse me, Brian Vickers says, Paul's most brilliant piece of apologetic evangelism does not end with mass conversion. But in the larger narrative, we know that the numbers, large or small, are determined by God's choosing. And he cites uh, Acts 13, 48. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And his providence in bringing his people to himself. God is accomplishing his purposes. God is drawing his people. God will Bring in the sheep that have been scattered among the world through the work and witness of the church, just like 
Paul's witness to the Areopagus. Friends, as we hold our God in high esteem, and as we engage unbelievers in their worldviews and philosophies, inviting them to turn from sin and trust upon the risen Jesus for eternal life, let's rest with confidence in the sovereign grace of the Savior, trusting that the gospel that he has entrusted to us is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray.